The rally to end childhood mutilation was a huge success on Friday as Matt Walsh and the SBG all gathered together to talk about a very important subject. We'll go over what the crowd there to protest childhood mutilation said and some of the takeaways from that event. But more importantly, we'll focus on another crowd that was there that day, the protesters who came to protest the protesters, because I think we can learn something vitally important from those guys. We'll talk about that and more today on Indie Thinker. Don't forget, today's show is sponsored by our friends over at Anchor. That's A-N-C-U-R dot B-I-Z. Those guys can help you put legs underneath your vision. If you didn't go into business so that you could start collecting a, you know, a room full of receipts or so that you could consistently pull out your phone every month so that you could calculate payroll taxes for your employees. If you didn't go into business to do any of that, but to focus on a very finite and specific vision, well, then you need to outsource some of those tasks to the experts who can do it way better than perhaps you can. And Anchor can do just that. They can help you with accounting, bookkeeping, payroll solutions, and hiring, and so much more. They can even help you with business strategies so that you can conquer whatever growth curves you presently have right now with style and ease. But in order to do that, you need to go over to Anchor. So you need to go to ancur.biz today and see how they can help you. And when you do so, you need to let them know that IndieThinker sent you because if you do so, they're running a payroll special right now for our listeners. So if you want to see how Anchor can help you put legs underneath your vision, then go check out our friends over at anchor.biz. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks so much for taking the time to watch, listen, and consider. Now, before we jump into the rally to end childhood mutilation, I want to take a brief moment to give a word of caution by way of an anecdote. I often start the show with an anecdote, and uh, I want to do it here, but in a way that I think is very important for setting up what we're going to be talking about, because the the rally to end childhood mutilation is a very sensitive topic. And when talking about sensitive topics, it's really easy to get emotional. And and I think it's important then to have a conversation on what healthy conversation looks like. Now, um, I want to do this by talking about one of the most recent episodes of the podcast. Last Thursday, I posted an episode uh, with Neil deGrasse Tyson on the Piers Morgan show where he's talking about transgenderism and transgender athletes. And I thought his comments were very interesting, so I wanted to do a show on it, and I did that. Now, while most of the comments over the weekend about this show were, were totally fine, I did receive no small amount of backlash from what I guess is the DeGrasse Tyson fan club, who and, and who knew that those guys, you know, pulled out their bow ties and rolled so hard? Well, fortunately and unfortunately, they actually don't. I mean, I got comments like, this video is too long, and this video is stupid. And I even got ridiculous takes about Christianity, because I often bring up my faith within the context of critical thinking, because I think it's important to be honest about who we are and what we think about these things. And I got people comparing Christianity to Egyptian mythology, Buddhism, and Hinduism. And and I just the point that these things are non sequiturs and logical fallacies to compare these things because they are falsely equivalent. Pushing that all aside, one of the most interesting comments I got was from a former student of mine. Now, I'm only pointing this out um, and using what this student said simply as an example of something much more broad, because certainly this student um, is very typical, not not atypical in any way, but, but his comments 
very much so often look like the comments that I get on on social media and on YouTube with with the videos that I post from time to time. And and they're far too common. So I think it's important to have a conversation about these things so that we can perhaps at least attempt to try to avoid kind of the logical fallacies and making some of the cardinal mistakes that we can make in disagreeing or having arguments or just even conversations with each other. If we're going to have healthy conversations, in other words, we need to just discuss what a healthy conversation looks like. So I'm going to bring up these comments and, and show you that we did have a little bit of a back and forth about a clip where I was discussing the definition of marriage and how we should define marriage. So here's that clip just for context real quick, and it's just 60 seconds long, so check it out. Everybody believes that there should be restrictions in marriage, even people on the radical left. We don't believe that we should be marrying child brides or marrying people to to animals. Everybody believes in restrictions for marriage. The question is, where do we draw the line? And this brings up the broader context of Christian nationalism, because ultimately, if we believe that we're going to draw the line somewhere, the question then becomes, where do we draw the line? And I don't see any reason, no objective evidence, why we should draw the line using secular humanistic principles and not biblical principles. So even if you don't agree with me, you're still going to have to ask yourself the question, where could we draw a line that we can mutually agree upon that that should be the basis for what we actually constitute marriage being. Okay, so as you can see, I'm merely just trying to say that if we're gonna put restrictions on marriage, which should be an indisputable logical fact, most people believe that we should have restrictions on marriage, then it necessitates that we define marriage so that we know where those restrictions are. That's merely the the argument I'm trying to, to make here. And I thought it was a pretty, you know, argument-free thing thing to say that, hey, even if you don't agree with me, you'd, you'd probably agree with restrictions, so where do we draw those, those lines? And I'm saying I think that there's a reason that we can look to Scripture in order to define what, what marriage actually looks like, since it is one of the most ancient and reliable sources from whence we derive our understanding of marriage. Now, as uncontroversial as that may be, like I said, my student, a former student of mine that was only a student for about like six months as I was subbing in a long-term fashion for a high school school class and talking about history and economics with them. Um, and, uh, and and I did so for a very short period of time, so I can't actually be blamed totally for this. But maybe I am to blame because one of the things that I always tried to do was encourage my students, if they disagree, to disagree respectfully, but to give me a clear argument for why you disagree. And so I made disagreement very, um, very acceptable in my class. Now, while at times our conversations seemed disagreeable for the sake of disagreement, there is some things that I think are really, really important to to point out because I think that they really do serve as an example for what a healthy conversation doesn't look like and how it should look like. So without going into the comments, you could go there if you want to. And by the way, you should be following at Reed Huberman. If you're not, you can go there and look at them yourself. But, but essentially what I'd like to do is just take our final kind of uh, discourse together and and kind of just pick that apart to try to help you guys see what a, a healthy conversation looks like. And first and foremost, a healthy conversation looks contextual. You'll see if you look at the comments that I actually encouraged him to listen very carefully to what I'm saying because I'm not saying that the state should be in the business of restricting homosexual marriage. I'm just simply stating that we must clearly define marriage. 
And the problem with not being contextual is this, is that if you don't get the context of the conversation, you will never be able to understand the conclusion that is drawn from the conversation. But this happens all the time on social media. People either purposefully misunderstand or ignorantly misunderstand what is actually being stated because they're too quick to go to the keypad warrior mode and to try to slam dunk than they are to actually thoughtfully listen to what's being stated. Even when you disagree with a position, as long as it has some element of rational thought, you should pick apart those things that are rational. Find the best part of the argument and go to that and see if you can refute it, which is kind of the next part of what a healthy conversation looks like. A healthy argument or a healthy conversation should be logical. And the more indisputable the logic, the better. So my logic here that is pretty irrefutable is that heterosexual marriage produces something that homosexual marriage does not. If this was in the form of a syllogism, it might sound like this. Heterosexual relationships produce children, which is a societal good. Homosexual relationships do not procreate or reproduce children. Therefore, homosexual marriages lack an essential good that heterosexual marriages have. And so the idea here is just simply irrefutable logical argument that there is a scientific and biological reality that heterosexual couples possess that homosexual couples do not. And that biological reality actually is the replenishment and the, and the repopulation of the human species, which is no small matter and is an intrinsic good to be able to continue the human race. And this is something that only heterosexual couples do. And so there is an intrinsic good to heterosexual unions over and above homosexual unions. So yes, biological sex does matter. In the conversation with my student, he said the gender of these people getting married shouldn't matter. Well, in the process of discussing marriage, I would think you might want to talk about some logical, undisputable facts that make up certain marriages but don't make up other marriages. Now, the third thing, and, and perhaps the most important thing, is that the argument has to be acceptable. So in other words, don't simply rely upon personal preference and personal preference and opinion. You must make an argument that that also is conferred by facts outside of your personal opinion. So in my conversation with the student, I said that stats tell us that heterosexual uh, relationships are typically much more stable than homosexual ones. Now, this is kind of an aside, but there's probably a joke here. Bill Burr, in his latest comedy special, said something about uh, homosexual relationships and um, made allusion to the fact that uh, this is a true stat, that lesbian relationships are way more unstable than almost any other relationship. Now, again, you'll have to go to the Bill Burr special to get exactly what that looks like. Like, that's not your fault! You married a woman! I did it too! Uh, heterosexual relationships are much more cohesive than homosexual relationships. Now, my student brought up the fact, well, um, these stats are probably skewed because uh, heterosexual relationships have been around longer for hom than homosexual relationships. Well, in the actual study that I'm talking about, and I'll cite it for you here so that you can go look at it yourself, it is talking about modernity. It is talking about relationships that are happening presently. So whatever happened in the past is has no bearing on these actual statistics here. And this is the, the weakest of all moves that most people do when they find inconvenient facts that don't suit their narrative or their argument, especially when it's statistics that are facts 
outside of themselves that should also be logical things that are indisputable. Now, I know stats aren't the whole picture, but obviously I also made other contextual arguments and logical arguments before bringing out statistical arguments. And so the dismissal of statistics as, well, they're just statistics, is merely a way to push away inconvenient realities that don't coincide with your argument. And this is something that I find all the time on social media. The moment you find any evidence to the contrary, you don't actually engage the evidence. You just say something like, oh, well, it must be skewed because it disagrees with me. I can't think of anything more modern than to say whenever anyone disagrees with you, they have to be wrong. And again, I bring all of this up because this is in no way about the student. It's, it, this is not an isolated incident. This is the most kind of argumentation I find on the internet. It is purposefully misunderstood, almost always illogical, and completely based upon personal opinion rather than facts. This cannot be the way we discuss in a healthy society. Now, maybe I'm an idealist and I'm hardly going to be able to make a difference here, but maybe a word of caution will help. If you've never publicly, on a public platform, with any following ever, expressed a coherent idea, especially one that might even just be slightly out of the mainstream, you should probably listen more and talk less. Hours of study and thought go into this show and other shows like mine. I've chosen the most difficult kind of show where I'm talking about philosophy and ideas and, and critical issues going on in society today. I mean, this is not fail army. It's trying to headbutt me, bro. <laughs> My point is when you've gone through the laborious process of deeply thinking, that is the best time to comment. Unless you have a question, and then if so, ask away. Otherwise, you run the risk of staring at the truth and making the seriously dangerous mistake of totally missing it. Now, for those who care about the truth, I also want to rem remind you of this. The truth is ridiculed, often opposed, and almost always misunderstood. This doesn't mean we stop talking. It doesn't mean that when we face resistance, we turn the other way and run. No, it only means we forge ahead all that much more strongly past the thorns and past the critics who wish to sit back and critique and not actually enter the arena and do anything of value. Rather, they wish to be in their mother's basement, basement, you know, critiquing parenting while having no kids, shouting about Christianity and criticizing it when they've never actually read the whole Bible and certainly never studied it with any degree of critical analysis. These people generally suppose themselves to be way more clever than they actually are. And trust me, they'll go back to whatever Twitch channel they usually follow, and they'll vicariously live through the video game playing of somebody who's as equally socially awkward as they are. But I hope for better than that, and I have seen that on my show, that there are a group of people who want to join the adult table because they care about hashing out ideas in a mature fashion. Well, to be honest, I don't always do that, but come on, guys, I'm human, and I do have a little bit of sarcasm in me every once in a while. But for those who desire to take the journey of honest inquiry, I encourage you to have healthy conversations. I encourage you to have healthy arguments, and I encourage you to continue watching as we jump into the events sections of our the events section of the show where we'll talk about a very important topic, the rally to end childhood mutilation, and we'll talk about that today on Christianity, not today.
Well, on Christianity, not today. We typically expose some current events that are patently unchristian, and then I try to provide a Christian perspective on these events because I think it's helpful to to think about these things as critically as possible and to try to give a perspective that you may not hear in other places. And if there is one perspective I think that I can at least provide a substantive response uh, to, it is uh, Christian issues and Christian perspectives on current events. And so that's what I'll do today. Now, obviously, the non-Christian thing here is the childhood mutilation of the supposed gender-affirming care crowd. And this is taking place in pediatric gender clinics all over the United States. Most recently, it was exposed at Vanderbilt. And the Daily Wire is doing some great work to try to keep this from happening to minors who clearly do not have the ability to consent to these kind of life-altering surgeries. So uh, Matt Walsh held his rally to end childhood mutilation this past Friday. And let's just say by the mere virtue of the size of the crowd there that day, I think that we can look forward to perhaps even in our lifetime seeing the absolute demolishment of gender-affirming care for minors um, if, if we're lucky. So uh, here's just a clip uh, that was sent to me by somebody that was there that day of the crowd size. Uh, so I just want to give you kind of a, an idea of, of what the setting was like that day. So here's that. Now, I also put together just kind of a very brief supercut of some of the speakers that were there speaking at the rally to end childhood mutilation. Now, this will give you not only a good idea of kind of the arguments coming from uh, the end childhood mutilation side, but then also to give you kind of a greater picture of what the setting was like that day. So here's that. Off-label puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones result in decreased bone density, increased cardiovascular and cancer risk impaired brain function, liver dysfunction, and permanent sterility. Teen girls who have their healthy breasts removed are never able to nurse children. Boys who permanently block puberty never reach sexual maturity and can't father children. Where we are now today, though, is those in power denying the existence of women. They are seeking to erase us as an entire category of people. And even more dangerously, they are denying the existence of objective truth. To have pornography in their school libraries and in, in the libraries themselves for kids to check out. They're the same people who throw their political opposition in prison, who stifle your free speech online, who censor every thought that they don't agree with, and then have the nerve to show up and call us fascists. I have news for them. This doesn't stop here. This is step one. This is step one. Your entire far-left communist agenda, and yes, I use the word communist because that is what you are. I'm here today to put an end to the idea that medical transitioning children is about human rights. It is not. It's about money. Now, that's some pretty good stuff, and I think that those are things that are worth um, thinking about and, and, and moreover. But actually, for Christianity Not Today, what I want to do is I want to kind of move past 
the speakers and the arguments that were coming from the opposing childhood mutilation side and quickly move to the counter protesters that were there that day. Now, you might have seen or gotten a a, a good glimpse based upon, you know, what you can hear in the clip of the counter protester presence that was there that day. Let's just say that they did a pretty reasonably good job of counter protesting against uh, the Daily Wire and the rally to end childhood mutilation. But I do have to make a quick observation just from history. Typically, counter protesters are the villains in almost every case. They're the ones that are throwing the tomatoes at uh, Ruby Bridges as she's taking a stand going into school and hosing uh, the protesters during the civil rights movement. The counter protesters are almost always the villains. These people who desire childhood mutilation have a problem with a bunch of adults showing up to withstand and resist this kind of stuff. So to give you kind of a bigger glimpse of uh, the counter-protester presence. Here are two detransitioners or people who regret their transition to the opposite sex uh, speaking at the rally. So here's that. Hi there, everybody. My name is Chloe Cole, and I flew out here all the way from California. So for those of you who don't know me, I am a former transgender kid. My name's Scott Newton. You may have seen me in a little documentary I made a while back called What is a Woman? During that interview, I had no clue who Matt Walsh was. I just thought, wow, this dude has a really, really great beard. I was the trans man who was called the hero in Matt's groundbreaking documentary. The hero, that's pushing it. All I did was tell the truth, and the truth is, is that I'm a woman and I will never be a man. Now, as you can tell, there's a pretty sizable resistance to the uh, to the protesters there that day. And they have a lot to say and they have a lot to yell and they have a lot of noise to make. And those sirens that you're hearing in the background are not the police. Those are people with megaphones and noise devices that are trying to do the best they can to drown out the speakers there at the rally to end childhood mutilation. Now, the reason I want to bring these people up is that the way this conversation has been posed in the past is that this is an issue of freedom. This is an issue of choice and people should be able to do whatever they want to do in America. And that's what makes America great. Well, I hope we can see that these people who have detransitioned and who regret their transition are making a free choice. But these counter protesters aren't interested in the free speech or the free choice of people like Scott Nugent. Uh, by the way, I forgot to mention, Scott Nugent said that you might have seen him on a documentary called What is a Woman? You might also have seen Scott Nugent on one of the greatest podcasts of all time called Indie Thinker. He just forgot. Um, you know, he was probably busy that day and had a lot on his mind and was dealing with the counter protesters. Forgot to mention that he was on the show in, in the past. And I'd encourage you to go back and check that show out. I'll put it down in the comment section so that you can so that you can see it. But but needless to say, 
these people weren't interested in hearing the conversations and the free speech and the regrets of these people who have transitioned. No, they were actually only interested in one side of the argument, but this should come as no surprise. Because while the conversation on gender-affirming care has been positioned as nuanced, which is my least favorite word these days because it's being abused and misused consistently, and while people want to say, well, this is just an issue of you being able to be your true, authentic self, what we see here is that we have a group of people that are not interested in authentic selves, free speech, or the ability to choose what you want. They're actually only interested in their agenda. So I hope we can see that conversations specifically around childhood mutilation is binary. You are either for protecting children or you are for your agenda to try to make sure that kids get placed on puberty blockers that caused bone density issues, cardiovascular issues, mental issues, and can even cause blindness in kids, according to the FDA. I hope you see that there really is only two options here, protect children or abuse them in this way. These protesters, I think, really hurt themselves that day when they showed up to the rally to end childhood mutilation because what they actually did is they exposed themselves as the haters that they actually are. So that is the main takeaway for me from the rally to end childhood mutilation. While there is some really important things that, I, like I said, can be heard from the speakers, what you see there is the, is the transgender movement's radicalism on full display. And you do have to pick a side here. I do hope that in picking a side, you'll pick the right side, and eventually, in our lifetime, we will see that the double mastectomy of small girls who will never be able to breastfeed and the castration of small boys who will be infertile and never able to actually have children ever again or have the life that they were intended to have, I hope that we will see in our lifetime that all of that becomes a distant memory. But perhaps, because I always try to get a little bit more broad than what just typically took place um, and try to make a point that's probably more universal, at least I hope, we also see something that I think is vitally important. We see the nature of freedom, and, and it brings up a discussion on what freedom actually is. This is a great opportunity for us to discuss what real freedom actually looks like, because certainly when we say freedom, we don't mean the freedom to be able to chop off the breasts of the healthy breasts of young girls or the penises of young boys. That's not real freedom. Real freedom isn't, I've got a fist, so I'm free to punch whoever I want to. So more and more, we misunderstand what freedom actually is. And so what is real freedom? And I'll spend the last bit of the show just kind of discussing that. So according to John Stuart Mill, uh, he proposed something called the harm principle. And he said this, that the right to self-determination or to liberty is not always self-determined. So you can't always say, well, I want to do it, so I'll do it. And, and he finished with this, an action which results in doing harm to another is not only wrong, but wrong enough that the state can intervene and prevent that harm from occurring. So in other words, freedom stops the moment people start getting hurt. Now, certainly you have to understand, children who do not possess the capacity to consent, we're clearly talking about these children, and that's what this rally is really all about. But I want to even go a little bit further than that and talk about adults, because if we're going to talk about freedom being that which does not harm others, like you have the freedom to do whatever you want to do as long as you're not hurting other people, well then certainly we have to take into account people being lied to by Big Pharma about the results of their full body plastic surgery and off-label drug usage. Certainly we have to be able to say, hey, that's, that's not what freedom looks like. 
And then we have to be willing to have a conversation about who has to financially gain from these kind of procedures. Is, is there a um, is there an incentive behind these things that may be malicious? And then finally, I would just ask you this. Will our world truly be a better place when this barbaric practice is outlawed? Now, if you push aside the conversation pieces so much that we hear from the gender ideologues on the left, uh, would you rather have a dead son or a live daughter and those kind of things? If you get rid of the emotional blackmail and you think about the fact that we just saw a rally to end childhood mutilation and that we live in a society where anybody could actually object to that, I hope we can take a deep breath restore some sanity and say, this is a barbaric practice and it should be outlawed and the world will be a better place when that happens. So is harm taking place? Yes, which means that gender affirming care, whether it be in adults or in children, is not freedom and it shouldn't be what we call freedom. So we shouldn't have the freedom to do it in America. I'm just gonna step back and say something that I know will be a little bit even more controversial than what I just stated. Liberty without virtue is a vice. And true liberty isn't given to you from the state. It's God-given. That's why it's inalienable. If the state can give it to you, then the state can take it away from you. If God give it to, gave it to you, then only God can take it from you. But in the same way, if you're willing to accept that, at least just from an, an intellectual standpoint, in the same way, we need to add to our liberty the kind of virtue that God also prescribes so that we can weigh our liberty with virtue. Libertarians here get it so wrong often that they think that freedom for freedom's sake is enough, but freedom for freedom's sake typically turns into anarchy. The state does have a place and a role in ensuring safety of other people and making sure that evil practices do not have have the freedom to do whatever they want, but they can be stifled. Of course, there are limits to that, but this is what we're talking about at the end of the day. There has to be a limiting principle upon freedom. And certainly when we're talking about big pharma, off-label drug usage, bodily mutilation, and things that very often people are regretting, and where the long-term studies, which whatever little ones we have, are stating that within seven to 10 years, people who transition usually are regretting it and suicidal. Suffice to say, we can't continue to just throw around the word freedom and liberty without virtue and think that we're creating a healthy and good society. And if that's true, what took place this past Friday is an essential good that needs to continue to take place. And especially to those of you who are Christians in my audience, you have an obligation to protest. You have an obligation to stand up. After all, especially if you're a Protestant Christian, where do you think that name comes from? Protestant. Martin Luther was a protester, and he was protesting the Catholic Church and some of the indulgence practices and many other things. Could you imagine if Martin Luther lived today what he would have to say about a, an organization called Big Pharma that is doing these, these kind of mutilating things to children and to adults? Do you think he might protest much? Now, we're coming upon the anniversary of, of, of Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Thesis to the, in, to the Church in Wittenberg. That happens on October 31st, and we remember that each year. So Halloween, yes, is the same day that Martin Luther um, nailed that 95 Thesis to the, to the Church. And it's a reminder to us that we as Christians have an obligation that we have an obligation to stand. We have an obligation even when we face tension and pushback to push against the pushback and not stop.
For those of us who are Protestants, we recognize the benefit of a person who's willing to take a stand, a person who's willing to say, here I stand, I can do no other. It is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. And so I will not and I cannot recant. I hope we can say that about this issue here as we talk about certainly child mutilation and even even more broadly, the mutilation of, of adults. While I myself am not much into protesting, I will just tell you this. I don't want to live in a society where great harm can happen to children and adults, and it will be totally unchecked by a people who are supposedly moral and supposedly believe in a transcendent value system that says that this is wrong. Those group of people sitting idly by, utterly silent, totally misunderstand their own faith. And this is where I think Christians get it wrong. Very often in their desire not to be controversial, to be perceived as loving, they are allowing evil things to take place on their watch that could be changed if they raise their voice, if they protest it. I mean, it is our heritage as Protestant believers to do this very thing. And we know from history the difference that can be made when Christians stand up for issues that matter. So I only hope that you'll remember something that I've said on the show very often in the past, that big earthquakes start with small tremors. So go out and do some shaking. Take a page from the playbook of the rally to end childhood mutilation and say something. Even though you may be misunderstood, it's still the most loving thing that you can do. Guys, thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. You can comment down below respectfully and go with God.